0: Welcome to this new thinking for a new world podcast of the Talberg Foundation. Sometimes history rhymes. One hundred years ago, to the month, the Treaty of Sevres put an end to the Ottoman Empire. However, in an echo of the American writer Mark Twain's dictum that history never repeats but sometimes rhymes, President Erdogan of Turkey today seems set on creating a new Ottoman sphere of influence. Geographically speaking, this sphere ranges from North Africa through the Eastern Mediterranean to the Levant and into the Caucasus as well as the Horn of Africa. Erdogan is playing a high stakes game that something could even lead to war between Turkey and Greece or Egypt. Alan Stoga discusses different perspectives on these developments with Nabil Fami, a former minister of foreign affairs from Egypt, and Jinkis Chandar, a Turkish journalist and expert on the Middle East.
1: 100 years ago, almost to the date, Turkey was forced by Britain and France to sign the Treaty of Sevres, which formally at least ended the Ottoman Empire. Today, President Erdogan is executing an aggressive foreign policy from the Caucasus to the Gulf, from Syria to Libya, through the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean at least. That may not be the start of a new Ottoman Empire, but it certainly is creating a Turkey that needs to be reckoned with in the region let me start with a very simple question, not about the strategy, but about the strategist. Sengiz, what does President Erdogan want?
2: Well, if you listen to the official voices of the Turkish government or some commentators who are very pro-Erdogan, they choose to define the foreign policy of Mr. Erdogan as assertive foreign policy. In the Western, mainly the American media Mm -hmm. uh, puts it as a new autonomous policy, which I contest because I'm the person in Turkey who coined for the first time, and I don't see anything new Ottomanist in, in, in Mr. Erdogan's policy. Uh, when it comes to, to call it assertive foreign policy, it more and more looks like an expansionist foreign policy. But uh, the, the, the ideologues of this foreign policy uh, who are not very well known outside of Turkey, uh, but those uh, the, uh, admirals, members of the Turkish military, uh, uh, all the way back in the year two thousand and seven, they formulated a, a notion, a concept. Uh, they called it a blue homeland, which extended Turkey's maritime jurisdiction. Uh, when it is measured now, it is four hundred sixty-two thousand kilometers squares. It's even uh, more than half of the, the land mass of today's Turkey. So what uh, Mr. Erdogan is following is uh, to achieve the uh, maximalist frontiers of this blue homeland, stretching it um, to the coast of Libya even. So Turkey is flexing its muscles and it wants to be taken as a major regional power uh, in the East Mediterranean more than anywhere else. And when it wants to project itself as an emergent, Uh, regional power uh, in the East Mediterranean, it also um, entangles Syria to Libya, and uh, Turkish maritime jurisdiction area uh, uh, from the Aegean Sea, all the way to to, to even to the Gulf, and even to Somalia. You can deduce uh, the best adjective you might uh, opt to use for it.
1: So Nabil, what's the best adjective to use for it, do you think?
2: I
3: can choose an adjective for you, but it's not necessarily the uh, correct one for the the policy as Mr. Erdogan wants it, but it is the correct one in terms of how it's perceived in the Arab world, at least. Whatever the motivation for Erdogan, whether it's his motivation and his party's motivation or the motivation, as just suggested, of the Blue Homeland concept, it is perceived in the Arab world as both aggressive and expansionist because uh, it deals with all of the Middle East and East Africa. And it involves uh, not only, if you want, legitimate political and economic interests, but it, it involves going back to historically to making claims in a number of these countries and the use of force in almost every single one of them. So it is seen both as expansionist and as offensive, excuse me, and aggressive. Whether it's uh, neo-Ottoman or not, that's really uh, debatable. I don't see, I I hate using old terms to describe contemporary policy because there's always a variation on this. But again, my long answer to you, it is very worrisome in the Middle East. And you're hearing this from somebody who for many, many years always felt that Egypt and Turkey were the most appropriate countries to help move the Middle East towards the center, towards moderation, towards tolerance uh, for many, many reasons. But that's not going to happen in the present day situation.
1: Let's focus on uh, on that, if not conflict, at least confrontation, potential confrontation between Turkey and Egypt. You're both advocates of diplomacy, what's the chance for the diplomats to to calm this down?
3: Well, let me jump in first here. Uh, At the beginning of this year, I wrote an article in in the Arab media suggesting that Libya would probably be the first battleground in the Middle East, not Iran, as uh, was thought at the time. And my concern, frankly, was a growing Turkish aggressiveness in Libya, coupled with the fact that Egypt cannot allow for threats to be too close to its border, And a third element, that there are so many servants on the ground and non-controlled parties in Libya that anything could go wrong. Uh, I'm very glad to see that the heating up of the situation about three weeks ago, uh, caused both the Egyptians to draw a red line and the Turks, while continuing their policy, to sort of not push the uh, that last button too quickly. That the increased threat potential may have woken up some rational thinking about what, uh, not going too far, but I still believe that uh, violence in Libya, either directly between uh, Turkey and Egypt, but more probably uh, as a function of surrogate activities, is still possible. I would tremendously hope it's not the case. Uh, But frankly, without cumulative global action, uh, this can really get out of hand very, very quickly. And it does not serve Turkey's interest, nor does it serve Egypt's interest, it's impossible to really engage in a serious, constructive discussion between uh, the Turkish government led by by President Erdogan and the government led by uh, President Sisi. They personally have so much, uh, so much at odds that it's not possible to take that as one step. And I don't think that either side is ready to sort of start at a lower level. So I'd love to see some wise European and some wise Arabs, uh, try to engage together in talking to the two sides, because this can get out of hand very quickly.
1: Sangeez, do you think that Turkey is looking for a solution in Libya and in the eastern Mediterranean, or feels that it still has space to build pressure and pursue its assertive expansionist blue homeland strategy?
2: But if this is a quiz, uh, if this was a quiz question, I would go for B. A very tangible example. I have to to, to uh, point out that um, uh, it's not only a matter between Turkey and Egypt uh, in the agenda. It's between Turkey and Greece, uh, which has much more priority than a confrontational uh, situation that, may, uh, that might arise from Turkey's policies in the East Mediterranean or in Libya, uh, the, the imminent danger is between uh, Turkey and uh, Greece, both NATO members. And um, the, just to, to give a tangible example, how Turkey is uh, much closer to the uh, mindset of a zero-sum game, that there would be ex- exploratory talks between Turkey and Greece concocted by by Germany, actually, behind the curtain. Uh, So the the two countries would sit down to negotiate, and uh, actually, uh, they would sit down uh, uh, for, as they called it, exploratory talks, um, to find ways to negotiate. And Mr. Erdogan, just a couple of days ago, uh, announced that uh, the the exploratory talks will not take place. There is nothing to talk with Greece. Uh, it is a real uh, problem which might lead into a uh, skirmish if we can't rule out a confrontation between Turkey and Greece, and we have to uh, take always into consideration the, the imperatives of Turkish domestic policy, the economic performance of the, the regime in Turkey, and the, the situation of the, the of uh, Mr. Erdogan within Turkey itself, which could translate itself quite quickly. Uh, into a confrontation not with Egypt, which would not be bought by the Turkish public because it's too far away uh, and it doesn't constitute any kind of national security threat to Turkey, Egypt. But when it comes to Greece, it is uh, much easier to mobilize the nationalist fervor in in Turkey. And given the, uh, the divisions within the European Union, and the absence of the, the American uh, power as an arbiter in the international uh, the games, uh, that with America first uh, position of uh, the President Trump, we don't see America much around in these kind of uh, conflicting areas. So the, the, I'm afraid that there is a real danger of uh, military uh, confrontation.
1: Cengiz, you're nibbling on the transformation of the system from global order to global disorder. And we've lived, we've all lived and worked in a period where there was a pretty stable global framework. Nabil, you were foreign minister and and a great diplomat throughout that period. And it does seem from everything you've both said that you may share the view that it isn't quite as predictable as it used to be. The Americans uh, are seemingly lost in translation. The Europeans uh, are also lost in translation. The Middle East, North Africa seems to be in open territory for mischief. What do you expect, Nabil?
3: Well, let, let me start by saying I kept using the word surrogates uh, regarding the Libyan theater. Uh, I didn't necessarily mean only non-state surrogates, but actually different players who came into the bargain uh, for different purposes uh, and without being pejorative towards anybody, the role played by Russia, for example, appears to be against Turkey in Libya, but it's also partnering with Turkey in Syria, as Zingis said. Uh, so there are just simply too many players on the ground for nation states to carefully Check and balance each other without the potential for big mistakes happening. That's my first point. My second point I completely agree that the uh, Greece situation is probably uh, more domestic related to Turkey in terms of getting momentum for it, and the potential for problems there also exists. Although, maybe the fact that both are in NATO. It would be a slowing down issue here. Um, in answer to your question, Alan, it's really very difficult to calculate. You can't play Russian roulette any longer in diplomacy. Uh, you don't know what's coming up next or, frankly, who's going to throw the dice uh, or put the bullet where because there are so many players there. Uh, it's, it's really ironic East Mediterranean now has become a wealth of energy at the time where actually gas prices are going down and there's too much supply. And the conflicts have extended from Arab-Israeli issues to uh, North Africa issues and also, of course, the the, uh, 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 Greek-Turkish issues. Uh, The main superpower isn't there. The uh, Europeans are divided on the ground. So it's very difficult to calculate what to do, who to ask to do what. But I would actually argue, nevertheless, we have to go back to the point of trying to compete legitimately, not for zero sum games, uh, not as a function of a balance of power, but a function of a balance of interests. And if I may say, and Zengis, please correct me if I'm wrong from the Turkish perspective. Uh, I actually believe that Turkey on one hand, Iran on the other hand and in a different function the Israelis also see this huge Arab vacuum and they see this as an opportunity to be more assertive in terms of Turkey and Iran in the regional politics and less uh, cooperative in terms of Israel vis-a-vis the Arab-Israeli peace process or the Palestinian-Israeli peace process I know this is not something people want to hear but I actually think that a more robust national security capacity in the Arab world, not necessarily only weapons, by the way, I'm talking about weapons and political relations that are more robust, more integrated, and more rational, would create checks and balances regionally to start the process moving forward. Uh, But unless we move in that direction, there's going to continue to be this vacuum or national security deficiency And you will continue to see if the present governments in Turkey and Iran continue, besides the Netanyahu's position, you will see these three countries doing more and more of what we're seeing. I think that Americans and the Russians need to once again engage not by forcing solutions because they can't, frankly, but they need to engage in serious diplomacy as we search for a multitude of assets to work together to push the, the uh, diplomacy rather than aggressive
2: politics.
1: Sankey, what do you think? I wouldn't
2: agree more with, with Nabil, uh, Nabil Femi on what he uh, defined that Turkey and Iran operates uh, uh, thanks to the Arab power vacuum, uh, which is very correct. And I see as he sees uh, the matter. However, I don't think that this is a a new phenomenon. Uh, It's it's not a phenomenon that we witnessed uh, uh, since very recently. It has been uh, there, the Arab power vacuum, since more than two decades. I don't want to go back to the days that uh, Egypt is perceived in vacating its leadership position in the Arab world, which uh, the entire world uh, used to see Egypt as the leader of the Arabs uh, uh, more than anybody else the Arabs themselves saw Egypt as such uh, but uh, let's leave it aside and and if we, we go back to the turn of the century the uh, with the war on Iraq later uh, the, the Arab Spring uh, when Syria uh, was fragmented and uh, and since then since the turn of the century that the, the, the major uh, issue of the Middle East, the pivotal issue of the Middle East, which was the Palestinian question, uh, was no more addressed. The the, the center of gravity of the Middle East moved towards the East, uh, uh, Iraq-Iran line, uh, to that front. So Mesopotamia uh, actually replaced Levant. Is being the, the uh, center of gravity of the, the power relations in the uh, Greater Middle East region, and therefore, uh, uh, although I, I uh, totally agree with the observation of Nabil, the, the wish uh, that he just voiced, I might share it uh, emotionally, but I don't see it to be achieved in the realistic sense how the Arab power will be uh, constructed or established in the foreseeable future. I can see that, and therefore, if we go back to the formulation of uh, your question, Alan, we are now living in the time of the world disorder, not in a world order, but world disorder. So, uh, therefore, for a, in this very long transitional period for the world history, probably, we will see more chaos, more disorder, and more uncertainty, particularly for our region for the Middle East, East Mediterranean and North Africa.
3: If I could just jump in in 30 seconds I agree with everything Nenghis uh, just said I don't ex- expect Arab power to uh, be regained or, or resumed in the short term uh, so I agree with you on that completely that's why I think it's important even though given my past profession, it's, I find it regrettable, we need to encourage the international community to play a role here to help stabilize the Middle East, because we won't be able to do it in the short term.
1: Let me end with a question about symbols. Symbols are always important. Uh, we've recently seen President Erdogan convert the Hagia Sophia back to a mosque after many years as a museum, thanks to Ataturk. How important is the Hagia Sophia well,
2: as uh, the G- German word Kulturkampf counts in explaining uh, political developments, this is a very, very vivid uh, signal of the Kulturkampf, uh, the culture uh, war that uh, Mr. Erdogan is uh, waging in order to replace the Republic with the, the Kemalist decorations that he inherited and uh, to to transform it into, as he calls it, New Turkey, which is strong stamp on it. But um, I am one of those uh, in Turkey uh, um, who um, claims that this is not Islamism. This is Turkish nationalism. The regime in Turkey, with some Islamic or Islamist decorations are still a Turkish nationalist regime. So in this sense, Uh, Hagia Sophia is very symbolic in his cultural war for his new Turkey, just to erase the the symbols of the Kemalist Turkey that he had inherited. But I think uh, there is another aspect of uh, transforming uh, Hagia Sophia into a mosque. It has something to do with the foreign policy. Uh, Mr. Erdogan is uh, waging a covert struggle for the leadership of the Sunni Muslim world, and the target, uh, what he targets is the axis, as he sees it, of Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates. So uh, he's trying to score uh, with transforming Hagia Sophia into a mosque in the Sunni Muslim world. And in his speech, uh, concerning uh, Hagia Sophia, which he said this is the inauguration of a new epoch in Turkey, which will be which will be crowned by the liberation of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. So he attaches Hagia Sophia issue to Jerusalem, uh, and he is well known uh, for his uh, sponsoring of Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood all over the. The Arab world, so it is, it was very significant in in uh, for multiple reasons the 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 uh, the, the conversion of Hagia Sofia into a mosque.
1: Nabil, it really is the last question. Uh, how do you see the consequences of Hagia Sophia playing out uh, in the Arab world, in the Muslim world? Is it significant, or is it an old symbol, not a not a relevant symbol today?
3: Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, and I say this respectfully, uh, anybody who's been following international affairs and politics knows that substance is of paramount importance, but timing is also uh, very consequential. Uh, given the, the, re- the turmoil in the Middle East, this has had very little uh, reaction in the Arab world, uh, particularly reaction beyond a Muslim sentiment. Uh, But among the middle class, uh, if you want secular Arab world, it was found to be interesting, but nothing that would generate a lot of momentum. Uh, I just want to refer again to something very interesting here. Egypt and Turkey are actually both becoming more nationalistic, but from different angles. uh, From the Egyptian government perspective, with President Sisi in particular, he's made it a point from the very first day he was elected to go to Christian celebrations, to fix the monastery and and all that. Uh, His reason being that Egypt is a nation state. It's not based on sectarianism or on, and he's a very pious uh, religious person, by the way, but he wants to emphasize the national identity of Egypt and the national identity of Arabs. Therefore, they include, as they did many, many years ago, Muslims, Christians, and even a small number of Jews uh, that remained in in, in the country. So this is part of our national, or the president's national approach and the country's national approach, that we are a nation state. This is our identity. Uh, We don't play the religious card in the... Islamic sense. Erdogan is more competing with the Saudis than with Egypt on the Sunni issue, although, yes, he does, does see Egypt, Emirates, and Sunni, and, and uh, Saudi as one thing.
1: Last question. Do you think this ends in conflict between Turkey and someone?
3: I think you will have skirmishes, uh, possibly several skirmishes. I don't think you'll have a large-scale sustained war. There are too many factors that would not uh, encourage large-scale sustained war. But repeated skirmishes, whether they are Turkish, Greece, uh, Egypt, Turkish, or surrogates in the Libyan domain.
1: Sengiz, last word.
2: Uh, I would add is that until January 20, the likelihood of a um, conflagration is higher than perhaps uh, after that date. when the the this, who will occupy the seat in the white house will be certain whether it would be mr trump or uh, mr biden it's secondary until that date the, the 20th of uh, 20th of january with the assertive expansionist aggressive whatever you call the policy of mr erdoğan uh, pushed exacerbated by domestic uh, the, Difficulties uh, may take the region to a, a war, not at the scale of the Arab-Israeli wars of 1967 or 1973, but nevertheless, it would be a war at a certain scale at least, uh, to, 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 to create a new uh, balance of uh, power in the region.
1: So based on that, we should have our next conversation in January, maybe January 19th, See if we can predict for the twenty-first. Thank you both very much. Uh, it is a strange new world in which we are are living, and thank you for tying it to the world we've left uh, and for highlighting some of the uncertainties that are gonna define what comes next. Thank you very much. Thank
3: you, Alan.
0: Thank you, please. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World Podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.